We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and our audition this time is just a little bit different because I have no witness into what makes life meaningful. What I'm going to be doing is looking at 10 things I've learned from my guests. Now, I started this podcast because deep down, I couldn't answer the question, what makes life meaningful alone? I needed other people. I needed as many answers as possible. And so, therefore, I started the podcast, got lots of witnesses together to see what I could learn and could help me on my own personal journey towards meaning. So it seems like a good time to look back and see what I've learned from my guests. The first thing I've learnt is the importance of kindness. I must thank Tracy Cox, who was my very first ever witness. We talked about great sex after 50, and she thought that the best ingredient, the key ingredient for good sex, in fact, probably at any age, but in particular after the age of 50, was kindness. Now, my immediate thought was that actually kindness isn't really very sexy. I don't want somebody to have sex with me because they're being kind. I want them to do it because they love me or they're feeling passion or all sorts of other things. But in a long-term relationship where you love someone, kind, if you're not 100% in the mood when your partner is in the mood, is something that is really wonderful. Because if you enter into that space, that sexual space, even if you're not 100% in the mood, you could find that you would get into the mood and you could end up having beautiful sex together. But sometimes we don't go into that space because both of us have to feel that we want sex at exactly the same time. And that doesn't actually happen very often. And one of the ways of having more sex would be to be kind to one another so that if you're invited into the sexual arena, you can use the kindness to your partner to come into the sexual arena. And I think most times we'll find that we are going to get uh, sexual too. Unfortunately, I think our society, for very good reasons, is focused on the idea no one should have sex if they don't want it, which is absolutely brilliant. But we forget the second half, the sort of the contemplative statement I make about sex, which is no one in a loving relationship should have to do without sex they do want. So let me give you that again. These two things are equally important. No one should have sex they don't want. And no one in a loving relationship should have to do without the sex they do want. And how do we make both of those things true? Well, we use kindness to help us along. It was interesting. I was talking to one of my clients the other night, and he was talking about listening to Iggy Pop, of all people, who was being interviewed. He said his great ambition was to be kind. Now, Iggy Pop is a sort of renegade who you think the last thing he would be interested in was being kind. But kindness is something that is really, really underlooked. It's sometimes difficult to be kind on a day-to-day basis to your partner. 
to be tolerant and see them coming with the best of intents rather than the worst of intents. So really being kind to your partner and kind in the world in general is possibly a spiritual path. So I'd like to say thank you very much to Tracy Cox for reminding me about the importance of kindness. Let's move on to the second thing I learned from my guests. And the second thing I learned was we are all the same. We are all the same. I must thank my guest Finn Ballard, who talked to me about being a trans man for this one. Now, I wondered about this show. I thought it might be too specialist, and would other people be able to relate to the issues of gender and being a trans man? Would it actually be useful for a general listener? And what's been fascinating is that this is the program of all of my editions of the podcast, The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall, that I've had the most feedback on and the most comments. And I've had so many thanks from people. From one of my friends, he said, I wish I'd heard it when I was younger. From someone I met on the street here in Berlin, where I live, who knew about the podcast and had listened to it, spoke particularly about this incident and this particular edition. So what is it that made this episode so powerful? I thought it was going to be about gender, but what it was really about was being true to yourself, because Finn discovered at a young age that he was a man, although to the outside world, he was a woman. And actually having the courage to walk this difficult path, to be true to himself, was something that was a very powerful witness story. And so what I learned is if I go deep enough, the story is for everyone, because ultimately we're all the same. We've all been blessed with messages from our parents, from society, everybody we know and love, that we should do something for want of a better way, the normal way. And not everybody can fit into that way. And in fact, everybody has to find their own path. Sometimes it's actually harder to find your own path when it's actually only slightly different from everybody else's. It's so much easier just to march behind everybody else rather than to march to that different drummer. And in fact, actually, I had a chance to relearn this message in an upcoming edition, which is about mothers and daughters. Toro, who's half my age and is a woman, she's black, I'm white, we come from different parts of the world. But when we both talked about our mothers, we could have been twins. We have more in common than what divides us. So thank you very much, Finn, for reminding me of this. And the edition with Aturo is coming up very shortly. So listen out for that edition. What is the third thing I've learned from my guests this year on The Meaningful Life? The third thing I've learned is everything makes sense. Let me explain about this idea. Jed Diamond is a therapist, and he told us about our personal creation stories. These are the, the messages we get given about our origins and about who we are from people around us. If we understand our personal creation myths and the messages we've been given to people, everything begins to make sense. So let me give you the example from Jed. His second wife slept with a gun under her pillow. Now, 
most people would take that as a sign, this is probably somebody you shouldn't get to know too well. It might actually be dangerous. But Jed thought she was the perfect partner for him. In fact, the relationship was incredibly destructive and one of them was going to die. And considering she had the gun, it probably was going to be him. This seems completely and utterly mad. Why would you date somebody who has a gun under their pillow and, even more, decide to get married to them? Once we understand his personal creation myth, this all begins to make sense. His mother had a great big fear of death. She was frightened she was going to die before he grew up. She was frightened that he was going to die. And so he inherited from his mother this great fear of death. Now, deep down inside his unconscious, what better way for challenging that idea or confronting that idea that we're all going to die than actually living with somebody who has a gun under their pillow? The problem is, when we do something stupid or something that makes no sense, we shut down our mind and say that was stupid and we move on. We don't follow the clues and try and work out why. Fortunately, Jed did. He had a third marriage, which has now been going for 40 years, and he learnt a huge amount. And what I learned from him was everything makes sense. The fourth lesson from my guests is make peace with your body. Now, this is an addition that if you haven't heard, I would really recommend. It is the most compelling story and the most compelling witness. My thanks to Susie Carlick, who is the voice on this podcast as well, so you'll know her. And the episode was about surviving violent crime. The addition was so compelling that as we recorded it, the room got darker and darker. But we didn't notice because we were deep in the story and we didn't want to break the spell. Now, the importance of listening to your body and making peace with it is that it's even wiser than you think. So let me tell you a little bit about Susie's story. She survived a home invasion. Somebody broke into her home in the middle of the night. They didn't come to rob her. They came because they wanted to kill her. And this was not somebody she knew. The police, when she called them, when she finally managed to get the man out of her house, didn't believe her. They thought that this was a boyfriend-girlfriend situation that had gone wrong. This violent attack, and it is very violent, she found a clump of hair that he'd pulled out from her head on the bathroom floor. That's how violent it was. And she had marks all over her body. This 15 minutes out of his life changed the course of her life. She's turned it into something very positive. She now gives self-defense courses for women. But at the time, she thought her body had let her down. As she told me, I thought I was a fighter. I thought I'd lived in New York. I could cope with this sort of thing. But did her body really let her down? She tried to understand why it did two things. First of all, she tried to understand why she started shaking she thought it was that she was frightened. But what she learnt was that actually it was her body warming up for a fight. The next way she thought that her body let her down was that it didn't hear the man break into her flat. But what she subsequently worked out was that, in a sense, her body had heard this because 
she was woken up by the need to go to the toilet. Now, this was not something she normally needed to do. And in a way, this was her body deep down telling her that she needed to get out of that bed. Actually, getting out of the bed is probably what saved her because she would have been far more vulnerable. And if she'd somehow got a message that there was somebody in the apartment, she would have probably freaked out. But it saved her by giving her a very compelling reason for getting out of the bed, but not one that was going to freak her out that she would need to answer the call of nature. So fortunately, that was where she found him, or he found her, and they had this terrible experience, but it could have been far worse. So by looking at what her body was doing, this is something that she needed to know really, really deeply, she was able to actually make peace with her body, and she realized it was wiser than she thought. As I say, this is one of the most compelling stories in the series. If you haven't heard it, please do go and have a listen, because I think you will be moved, and you might even think about taking some self-defense lessons yourself. What is the fifth thing I learnt from my guests on The Meaningful Life? Well, the fifth thing I learnt was to be upfront, and this one came from Charlotte Fielder. The edition is called Dogs and Volunteering. One of the things that Charlotte had been volunteering was with an organisation that helps children with upper limb difference. And she has been helping them to show it's possible to have a full life, a successful career and a loving family, even though she hasn't got one hand. As a teenager, she was obviously very sensitive. She met a guy in a club and he asked her out on a date. What she hadn't realised was in the dark, and because generally she kept this a secret by sort of keeping her hand in her pocket a lot of the time, is he hadn't actually realised that she had only one hand. So on the first real date, they went to a restaurant or somewhere light, and he saw the situation and freaked out and sort of basically took her home as quickly as he possibly could, and that this was, at the time, a very painful experience. But she learnt four things from it. That it was the man that had a problem. It was his problem. It wasn't to do with her. He was not the sort of person that she wanted to associate with. This was the message from her father, that actually he was a shallow man who couldn't see past this. And do you want to be involved with shallow people? Well, Charlotte said no. And this is the lesson that I learned from her, the third lesson. If you're up front and you don't hide your issues, it's not going to be a problem. So if you're up front, it won't happen again. And if you don't have a problem, others won't either. Unfortunately, we tend to hide the things that we're uncomfortable about. And the more we hide something, the bigger problem it is. And the more it is a problem for us, the more it becomes a problem for other people as well. So thank you, Charlotte, for teaching me to be upfront. Tell people what the issue is. And often it suddenly isn't an issue anymore. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. Follow your hunches. That's the sixth thing I learned from my guests. Tim Dowling is a Guardian columnist. He writes an amusing column about families. 
in his mid-40s, he saw a banjo and had a hunch it might be the solution to all his problems. <laughs> now, what did he mean by a banjo being a solution to all his problems? Well, he had a hole in his life. So I asked him what sort of hole. He was in his 40s. He needed something new. He needed a new challenge. His children were getting much older and they didn't need him so much. Somehow, deep inside, he knew he needed to grow. So he persuaded his wife to buy him a banjo for Christmas. And as he explained, your 40s is a perfect time to start something new that you're going to take quite a few years to master. Because I'm 60, and if I started learning to play the banjo, it would probably take me 10 years and I'd be 70. Well, it's much better to get the banjo under your belt at 50 so you can go off and do something with it than at 70. So he had enough time to get up to a really good standard to the point that he could play with professionals. So he joined this group called Police Dog Hogan. He'd been in a band as a teenager. So in a way, it was like going back to some of the things that he left behind as he became an adult because he had other things to do, like earning a living and raising a family. Now, he'd done the majority of the raising the family. and He'd go back and fulfill some of those dreams as a teenager he didn't do. The great advantage of the band is that their egos are much more manageable. When you're a teenager, your egos are huge. And I think that's one of the reasons why his initial band collapsed. And being a member of Police Dog Hogan has been a source of great pleasure for him. It did fill that hole and he did follow his hunch. The problem is most people don't follow their hunches when they suddenly say to themselves, hmm, the banjo might be the solution to all my problems. They laugh and they dismiss it and they walk along to the other side of the road. Fill in on the topic of banjo something that you might have thought would be a good idea but have moved away from. But if you follow your hunch, it could be that it might be the solution to your problems. What I find a lot is people who don't listen to their hunches and double down on their old life end up exploding it in a midlife crisis. And it's much better to learn the banjo than destroy your life with, I don't know, an affair or something like that. So, Tim, thank you very much for that piece of learning. The seventh thing I learned from my guests is to feel the fear and do it anyway. You've probably heard that phrase. It's a book by Susan Jeffers I read many years ago. I was reminded of the idea of feel the fear and do it anyway from my guest Rachel Weiss from the Menopause Cafe. Originally, I was invited to go on to the Menopause Cafe podcast and I thought, I'm a man. What have I got to say about the menopause? And I realised I was terrified of talking about the subject what can I say about the menopause? I don't know anything about it. Do I have the right to say anything? Because I'm a man, and if I did, I would probably get my head bitten off. So you can see why I was terrified. But actually, when I'm terrified of something, that's often a very good reason for me to do it, because there's going to be something important that I'm going to learn, like feel the fear and do it anyway. Well, Rachel and I got on wonderfully. The addition was really interesting. What we realised as we talked together is there's almost a taboo about men and women talking about the menopause. It's sort of something women should talk about all on their own. But it affects the men who love them. 
So it is important for it to be a conversation and a good conversation, not a blaming kind of conversation that men and women can have together. So why is it important to feel the fear and do it anyway? And how did I get over my fears? Well, the thing is, if we don't feel the fear, we actually don't do it. And our circle of comfort gets just a little bit smaller and a bit smaller and a bit smaller. But if we feel the fear and do it anyway, our circle of movement and topics gets bigger and bigger. Now, I know it's difficult to feel the fear and still to do it. So what did I learn from attacking my fears myself? The first thing I learned, and it's something that I often say a lot to my clients, which is accept the feelings and challenge the thoughts. Let me say that again. Accept the feelings and challenge the thoughts. So I accepted the feeling that I was terrified. But when I was speaking to Rachel, I was able to challenge the thoughts. You know, what can I say about it? Actually, I can say quite a lot because I'm somebody who deals with the conflicts between men and women. And sometimes that is over issues that are directly related to the menopause. Would I get my head bitten off? Probably not. But once I'd actually challenged the thought, I can actually begin to think that that was possibly a bit of an exaggeration. I haven't got a right to say anything. Has a man who loves a woman never got the right to say something about something that affects him and her? I think we can challenge that thought straight away. So what I did was I accepted the feelings and I challenged the thoughts. The second thing I did is I approached the subject with curiosity. And this was genuine curiosity, because if I'm not afraid to make mistakes, and this is the third element of it, that people will respond with kindness. Because, you know, if I do actually ask a silly question, if I'm asking it from a genuine place of curiosity rather than blame or trying to uh, put somebody down, they're not going to be upset about it. What I also learned was it gets easier because you also end up learning stuff as well. Since doing this program, I have been talking with my clients more about the subject of the menopause. And I suppose what I found talking to a woman who had issues around her period times, which were actually being made more complex because of being perimenopausal, was the feelings are real, but the issues around the time of the period make them bigger. And that if other people deny those feelings, it makes them bigger and the whole situation worse. So it's important to feel the fear and do it anyway. And my thanks to Rachel for helping me do that. And as I say, it's a bit of a taboo breaker. So you might like to listen to that edition as well. We never get over this grief thing. This was a lesson from Joe Horton from the Guild of Dads. He lost his mother at 18 when she was involved in a traffic accident. Joe's father died of a stroke in his mid-30s. Now, Joe thought he'd cope better the second time around because he was older. He had more support this time round. Last time round, the only support he really had was from his father, who was also having to deal with his own grief, whereas now he had his wife and his friends were older and better able to support him. And he thought he'd done it before. As you can possibly imagine, it wasn't as simple as that. And he said this very wise thing to me, we never get this grief thing off. 
It also reminded me of something that Auntie Gill, who was my mother's best friend, really brought home to me as well. She lost her daughter and more recently she lost her husband. What she said to me is grief does not have the same clock as the one we have. Sometimes it feels like months ago and other times it feels like it really is years ago. And as I was talking to a client recently about grief, I realized that grief actually doesn't have the same compass as we do. Because normally we set off on a journey of healing, we know where the destination is, and we work through it. But actually, what is the destination when you're recovering with grief? I know all about this because my partner died over 20 years ago. And I know the pain doesn't go away, that you don't get healed from bereavement. You never get this grief thing off. But, and this is the more positive message, you can grow big enough to live with the pain. So by learning, you can actually expand your comfort zone. You can actually deal with the pain, not be overwhelmed by it. So when from time to time the old pain about losing somebody you love, and I think you probably know I've lost my mother as well, that pain comes back up. But I can live with it. I've grown bigger. I can say, oh, yes, that's that old pain coming back. And yes, it feels very real at this moment. And oh, gosh, there's an extra dimension to grief I've forgotten. But I can live with that. I can cope with it. It doesn't overwhelm me. So thank you very much, Joe, for that wonderful phrase, we never get this grief thing off, because it is incredibly true. And it's useful to hear other people say it and to realize that I'm not the only person that's having trouble with this grief thing. And that is one of the beautiful things about the meaningful life is you get to hear other people talk deeply and honestly, and you realize that you're not the only person who's having trouble with this meaning thing. So the ninth thing I learned was really powerful, and that is the meaning of life is growth. My guest for this edition was Nathaniel Garrett Novosel, who's written a book called The Meaning of Life. And the minute I found there was somebody who claimed to have the answer to The Meaning of Life, I had to have him on the podcast. He started on this quest at an incredibly young age, and I found this absolutely fascinating. He was six years old, and he'd been to visit his father who had left him and his brother and his mother for a new life over the other side of America. And so he only saw his father once a year. He would go and then would come back. And when he came back, he felt incredibly empty inside. At six years old, he lay in bed and he asked himself, if I'm going to be this miserable, what's the point of life? which is the sort of thing that probably we ask ourselves at 40 rather than six. And most of us at 40 will think, oh, well, I'll try and answer an easier question than what's the point. Nathaniel decided at six to try and answer it. So he would watch adults try and dissect their behavior and understand. And he started to talk about his robot brain, and he used his robot brain to try and understand and dissect. Later, he discovered what he had was high-functioning autism or Asperger's. Listening to Nathaniel, I had a great insight, how different people's brains work. We don't often 
get a chance to understand how somebody else's brain works, especially if it's very different from ours. And Asperger's and neurologically typical, which is what people like you and me would be described as, is going to be very different. And this is what's so interesting. Difference can be a strength. He started thinking about this at a very young age, at six years old. By nine or ten, he was reading books on statistics and data and being fascinated. He studied psychology, evolutionary biology, economics, and he pulled it all together. What he thought is that everything that is alive is growing. So the meaning of life is growth. He can back this up with psychology, evolutionary biology, economics, and it rang incredibly true for me. The meaning of life is growth. It seems like a very important sentence. And one of my mentors is James Hollis, who's a Jungian analyst, and you'll hear me mention him a lot on this podcast. And one of his ideas is that if we don't know what to do, to choose the path of enlargement. What's going to make me larger? What's going to help me grow? Because by becoming bigger, we can actually live with the pain. We probably can't cure being a human being, but we can grow big enough to cope with the slings and arrows of fortune that's thrown at us as a human being. So the meaning of life is growth. Thank you very much, Nathaniel, for teaching me that. The tenth thing I learnt from The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is to be open-minded. And my thanks to Kay Hutchison from My Life in 37 Therapies. This is a book that she wrote. It was the second edition of this programme. Kay had a personal crisis. She decided to try as many therapies as possible. I'm going to list a few of them like homeopathy, astrology, Reiki, hypnosis, past life regression, dinner dating clubs, all things that probably would make your heart sink. What she discovered is she learned from each one. Each one gave her something. They helped her think differently, feel differently, behave differently, and she learned a lot. So the lesson that she learned, or I learned from her, was to be open. We think we need to know the destination. You know, what am I going to get out of past life regression? How's that going to make things different? But we sort of don't need to know the destination. What we need to be certain of is to have an open mind and not to close the door because we don't know where it's going to lead us. So I must say thank you to all my guests, and I think it would be useful to summarize once again those 10 things that I learned. I learned, first of all, to be kind. I learned we're all the same. I learned that everything makes sense as long as we go deep enough and solve and answer the questions about why are we doing this thing. It's important to make peace with your body because it's probably telling you things that you need to hear. And if you listen to it, you might begin to understand and things might begin to make sense. If we're upfront about our issues, they become less of an issue. Other people are less likely to freak out and you can actually negotiate with them about it. The sixth thing I learned was it's important to follow your hunches. You don't have to know the destination, just follow those hunches. You're probably going to be full of fear, but you should do it anyway. 
We never get over that grief thing, and this is my promise, but you can grow big enough to live with the pain because the meaning of life is growth and we have to be open. So I think I learned something that was really important from my guests in The Meaningful Life. And I hope that you've learned something important, and I hope that you're going to continue to listen to the series. I've got some great episodes coming up. There's an episode on gratitude. So instead of asking when things get difficult, why me, to ask the question, what can I learn? I think you'll find that episode really important. And I think that you'll find the edition on facing the mother wound really interesting because Etoro, my guest, didn't just talk about her mother with her therapist. She actually had the courage to speak to her mother about the issues and something melted inside and it improved her relationship with her mother. So I think you'll find that edition really useful as well. And there's many more exciting editions coming up. If you found this particular podcast useful, why don't you become one of my supporters? It costs money to put this podcast together, and it would be really helpful if you could help me. And at the same time, you get all of these benefits. You'll be able to write letters for me and my guests to discuss. There's bonus materials on all the editions where you can hear with my guests the three things that they know to be true. And we will talk together about what we've both learned from these encounters. Why don't you also review this podcast? Spread the word to your friends and let's make the next year a meaningful year. Thank you for joining me today. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.